The biggest names in tennis are coming to Paris for the most anticipated Roland Garros in years. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled tournament access as the world's top players in tennis face off against each other. Will the veteran champions continue their dominance or will a fresh face emerge to challenge their legacy on the clay courts? Daily live coverage of this epic showdown begins Monday, May 20th. Don't miss a matchup. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello there. Welcome along. This is Writer's Routine. Now, sharing the story of how she told her story today is Namwali Serpel. In 2014, she was selected by the Hay Festival as one of the best African writers under 40. And that was just for her short story writing. Her debut novel, it's just come out, it's called The Old Drift, and it tells a twisting, turning history of Zambia as a nation, and also of the people who have grown up as it's formed and as it's changed. Now, we talk about how she wants her work to be viewed currently, and then ultimately remembered. Also, you can hear about how her writing day focuses around a co-working space for women, and we chat about planning, structure and how for this story that was just incredibly vital. In order to actually write a book like this, I had to be quite structured. But I think I'm like that in general. When I write, I tend to be very, I tend to make an outline. I tend to diagram things out for myself. A lot of it is pictographic, like I said, with the spiral. you know, I think of uh, Virginia Woolf's notebook for To the Lighthouse, which has a diagram in it to understand what the time-passing section was going to look like. I think in that way, I have this kind of visual logic or diagrammatic idea, and then when I'm writing within it, things feel just much freer. So stick around, there's more of that on the way with Namwali Serpel in this week's Writer's Routine. Right then. Lovely to have you along. Thanks for being there. Yes, my name's Dan Simpson. This is Writer's Routine, the show that does exactly what the name suggests. It takes you through the working routine of a successful writer to pick up some tricks and tips from some of the best. Now, before we get into it, very quickly, I want to say a huge thank you to Sleffy and Ra Fox and Welsh author and loads more for the kind words that you've left over on Apple Podcasts. If you're listening to this show, if you've not got in touch already, I'd love for you to take two seconds out of your day and just write writer's routine a nice review over on apple Podcasts. it's honestly the easiest way that you can help out what we do now if you're not on apple uh, just make sure that you're subscribed to the show however you're listening whatever your favorite podcast place is because that'll be just as helpful uh, to me and to you because the episodes will download automatically pretty much every week now this week namwali serpel is on the show uh, and she's a proper student of the craft of writing 
and she's a teacher of it too. She tutors writing in English literature at the University of Berkeley over in California. Now, you'll hear the, the kind of interesting and strange way that that has affected the way that she wrote her debut novel, in just a sec. She's won loads of awards and prizes for her short stories in the past. Uh, I told you about the Hay Festival one earlier on. There have been loads more, uh, and that's finally pushed her to publish her very first novel, which took a long time to write. And we'll chat about why in a little bit. It's called The Old Drift, uh, which refers to a colonial settlement. And the story follows three families across generations as they live life in the new nation of Zambia. And I really think this is it's a fascinating chat because we talk about where she goes to work and why it has to be there. Also, the writing retreats that she's been on and how she wants this book to be remembered in the future when she's not here. We'll also get a top writing tip from one of the most famous crime authors working today after we get into it with Namwali Serpel talking about what she sees around her in the place where she sits down to write. I have a studio apartment in San Francisco that has two bay windows and I sit at my very thin IKEA glass table, sort of like a desk, and I'm looking out toward the Mission District where I live. There's a pink and purple house across the street. In the distance, there's the Twin Peaks and Telegraph Hill. Often when the fog uh, comes in, the top of Telegraph Hill looks like a ship floating on top of it. And I look out onto a very busy intersection. I've seen three car accidents there happen before. Um, I see people walking down the road. I see a big magnolia tree. So, I mean, it sounds uh, not the most romantically creative view. If you've got a bustling road out the front, Mm -hmm. do you fix that have you got anything on the walls that keep you inspired pictures books perhaps quotes stuff that you're working on with the story no it's all glass in fact you know it's the i have a glass desk and i have this window in front of me and i never have the shutter closed because i want the sun coming in and what i see are these kind of layers or scrims of of life right it's very very close by life in the in the street intersection dogs and people and birds And then I see nature, I see trees, and I see homes, I see houses, and then I see in the distance this view. And it's that layering um, that I find peaceful. It lets my mind wander. If I were to walk into your writing room on on a day when you are working, when you're in the midst of your story, would I have any clue as to the subject that you're writing on? No, (laughs) not at all. I mean, my apartment has some... Zambian paintings. I've been collecting Zambian art for uh, maybe 10 years. So if you looked at the walls, you would see a painting of an intersection in Lusaka, uh, Lumumba Road. You would see a painting of a fish market with chicken wire painted in. You would see an abstract painting, which is white with red and blue stripes uh, on either side, kind of parallel tracks that's called the destruction of all beautiful things and it's got this kind of intensity to it and you would see some masks but you would also see a painting by my mother that she did in Hawaii on wood you would see a a mural that my grandfather made of the cutouts of letters from old books so it would be very hard I think to actually pinpoint 
uh, what I was writing about, which is fitting because I'm pretty eclectic in what I write about. Let's talk about the day that I'm stumbling in upon then. Um, Mm -hmm. Talk me through the moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed on a day when you are sat down to write. To write. To write, yeah. So... Mm -hmm. I don't know, with the, the day job in the middle of that, how you're working around it, what's going mm. on for you? Leave no what you might perceive to be a tedious stone unturned. So I don't write on the days that I teach. It's this. It's just not feasible. So this would be a day that I was not commuting to Berkeley across the bay to so, teach. Sorry to interrupt, but very quickly, yeah. why, um, why is it unfeasible? Teaching just takes up too much time. And there's the... I teach literature, so I'm usually reading or rereading what is being taught I have to design a lesson plan whether it's a seminar to discuss or a lecture that I'm going to deliver and then I have to get across the bay which is about an hour door to door and teach the class and then I hold office hours and I'm on campus and I don't write when I'm in my Berkeley office it's filled with books and filled with students and ideas and thoughts but it's not conducive to creative writing for me Fantastic, because I have had emails from many people listening to the show who are um, who would like to hear from someone who is hold, has is holding down a you know a full time job yeah. whilst finding time to write, and the fact yeah. that you're not doing that on the days when you are working kind of confuses the whole muddle a lot more. So take yeah. me through a day when you are sat down to write. So because I teach usually two to three days a week, the days off and the weekends and the holidays. I would wake up probably around 10. I would take a shower. I would make myself uh, a latte, a stovetop espresso with a, I have a little frother um, to make the milk and one boiled egg. I would eat that and drink that and shuffle my way over, usually in my, still in my slippers, but clothed to my bay window. I would open the laptop and I would begin. I also work at an all-women's uh, workspace. It's like we work or The Wing, um, but it's called The Ruby, and it's filled with creatives, photographers, uh, people who work in the food industry, um, and it's run by a writer named Rachel Kong. And it's about a mile from my house. So on the days that I work there, usually to do revisions and edits rather than to create new work, I would take a shower have the boiled egg, leave my house, pick up a latte and walk a mile to the Ruby, head up the stairs to the library, which has a skylight there, open my laptop and begin. What what differentiates where you work? I know, I know that you said Mm. that you you mainly do revisions when you're in the, in the co-working space. Yes. Why is that? And what dictates when you're going to go there? Well, it depends on what's on the to-do list, right? And, you know, I, I've written a lot of essays recently and I've also had to run through the copy edits and proofs for this 560 page novel. So there was a lot of revision and editorial work that I that I needed to do. And so I would go to the Ruby to do that when I'm writing from scratch, writing at home, writing basically in some sunlit place. It doesn't really have to be a desk it can be just a chair under a tree there was a writing residency I went to twice um, by luck in upstate New York and you had this view of uh, the mountains and the Catskills in the background and there was this they called it Namwali's tree after a while because I would just go and sit in this little chair 
underneath this tree and what's great is I have pictures of me in the in the autumn with the leaves bright red and orange and then I have one in the spring with them bright green with flowers emerging and it's this I'm in the same exact hunched over position but I just I, I just needed to to be I just need my laptop and sunlight if that makes sense you say it's an all-female yeah. working space yeah what does that do to the energy of the place mm. why I guess very simplistically and I understand I am a male asking this question, mm. so that comes with a certain amount of implication. Why is that necessary? So it's not necessary for me, per se. Um, I've worked at a coffee shop, which is ironically called House. So go from my house to House, H-A-U-S. Um, I worked a lot there because they had a patio space, so again, I could work in the sun. And uh, when Rachel decided to create the Ruby, she has a whole lot of reasoning and... Um, kind of politics behind the decision to have it be an all-female space like the wing. Um, I appreciate it insofar as I've been to an all-women's writing residency called Hedgebrook uh, on the west coast of the U.S. It's an island off the coast of Seattle, Whidbey Island. And it was an amazing space. We each had our own cabin and we would meet for dinners and we would take long walks. And they also have a real ethos around it being an all-women's space. I think, I'd, I haven't thought it out because I've never planned anything to be an all-female space or even work of art. There are a lot of women in my book, but it's not all women. But I, I find it's less distracting, if that makes sense. And uh, not in a flirty way. But more in a not needing to negotiate my gender identity in the space. I'm just a person in that space. Um, yeah, I just don't need to worry about my being a woman when I'm with other women. So when I'm writing fiction from scratch, I can write about three hours before I run out, I kind of tap out of juice or energy. Uh, and I know when I'm done, when I find myself revising a paragraph over and over again, it means I'm not moving forward anymore, I'm moving backward. Um, I do tend to revise as I go, I edit as I go, but when I get stuck and I start rearranging things, that's when I know I'm just moving the furniture around the room, I'm not actually building the space anymore, building the house, I suppose. And so, yeah, it's about three hours, and... I tend to immerse myself in one project at a time uh, when I'm writing fiction. So if I'm writing a novel, I'm writing that novel at that time. But occasionally things will swoop in, which is part of the reason this novel took me 20 years off and on to write, because it would swoop in every few months, uh, every, every once in a while. And in terms of what I'm going to write each day, Usually I reread what I wrote the day before and to have some kind of continuity to move forward. But I don't always write in order. So sometimes that's obviously not going to be the case. Sometimes I'm jumping into a future moment. Let's focus on that for a second then. I mean, you mentioned earlier, it's a hefty old book, like yes. almost 600 pages yes. long. Um, and if you are dipping in and out of every few months and if you are mm. uh, also dipping in and out of the timeline of the story, how do you know what's happening across the entire piece? How are you keeping that churning away? So I think structurally, I've known what was going to happen in this book 
since 2005 or so. I have notebooks from then and outlines of the three families and their the three to four generations, really, um, of those families and how they would intersect. And so I had the kind of lay of the land. When it came to actually getting the dates right and getting the historical moments to map onto these events and these characters' lives, that writing happened in a in a much more concerted, I'd say, two-year pr- process of writing and revision after the book was sold. I, we sold it on about a scattered third of it. So at that point, I needed a global timeline. So I have an Excel spreadsheet that has different tabs for each character, but then the first tab is just all the different characters, all the dates going from... 1866 or so to 2050 or so with every character and the age that they're at in those years. It's just so that I can say, okay, when Nyla is eight, then Jacob must be 10. And just so I could figure out what age they were in what year. And that was really, I should have done that much sooner. I did it late in the process and it meant that there was a lot of um, back and forth of me rearranging and, and changing dates and things like that. Let me quickly, for the last time, take you back to the day. Yeah. Uh, you've uh, Three hours? Yes. How many words do you tend to get through in about three hours? Ooh, um, I'd say about... Uh, I'd say about a single-spaced page an hour. I don't know how many words that is. Maybe a thousand words? Uh, that's an American thing, isn't it? Over in America, they're very... Like, in, over here, we're quite focused on word count. Word count. No, but, people are in, in writing as well, in the, in the States too. I just don't... As an academic, we work mostly in page numbers. Um, I think one word, one page single space is about 500 words. Okay. And so I'd say I get through about 1,000 to 1,500 words. Towards the end of your three hours then, when you can feel yourself a bit flagging, have you yeah. learned any tricks along the way? Uh, have you uh, come across any methods to help pick you up, to maybe give you that last burst of energy? What have you found, I guess I'm asking? Mm. What intricate things have you found that help your three hours of writing go as smoothly and be as efficient as they can? Do you need certain music on in the background, no, for instance? No, it, ambient ambient noise is, is better for me than music. I can write with music in the background, but I don't insist on it. Um, I did, I, I will play music when I'm editing sometimes and when I'm conceiving of ideas, because I remember playing over and over um, Nina Simone's version of Pirate Jenny from Three Penny Opera when I was writing at that residency I was mentioning before. I would go into my room and I would play that song over and over as I was thinking through what was going to come next in the book. Um, but the writing itself, I was outside under with bird song and insect song, basically. Um, I think for me, the learning what time of day is best for me, it's which is unusual. Most people are sleepy or hungry around this time of day, between like eleven and two. But that's my that's my perfect time. I think I can get into flow because I'm a bit sleepier. Um, and I yeah, I just I really like the combination of like just having had coffee but also being a little bit sleepy because otherwise I get too self conscious. Post two o'clock then, after the three hours are done, Mm. is that it? Is your story put to bed that day? Later on, uh, are you picking things up? Are things going over your mind throughout the time? 
It depends. I think when it's going well, it just keeps going, you know, and I, so I'll, I'll put it down and I'll be, I'll close the laptop, but my mind will still be going. And so I'll open up the laptop again and change some things, add some things, do some revisions. Um, and so, and very often I'll write something in like an eight hour burst. That's happened to me quite often, more with nonfiction than with fiction, but it has happened with fiction before where I wrote a whole, st- a whole short story in an eight hour burst. So I'll have these little fugue states sometimes, um, but when I'm trying to be regular and you know access the, the, the spirits or the muses, it's basically three hours and it's better for me if it's three hours every other day. Because if I'm writing every day, I just write too much and I end up cutting half of what I write. I started this book in college and then I went to graduate school because I needed a job to pay me to read and write. And this was a very, that was a very good one. But it meant that I had to write a dissertation as well. So I had to write a dissertation and then I got a job very luckily. So I had to write an academic book. So that's six years, then another six years. And I wrote another novel, which is currently in a drawer. Everyone has that Mm. first book they have to write to figure out how to write a book. So that's one of the reasons it took so long. It's because I was doing, I was writing these other books. I think the other reason has to do with the sense of responsibility I felt to tell the story right. Um, I do think in the end it's quite an irresponsible book because I play with so many genres that you can't really use it as a sociological or anthropological or even touristic account of Zambia. But... I do, I did feel the desire to capture certain things about my country, and that felt like a certain weight. I didn't feel as free, to be honest, when I was writing um, at the start. Once the book was bought, however, I felt very free. I think my editors really just let me do what I wanted to do. And so, you know, now it's narrated by a swarm of mosquitoes, which I didn't think would happen. And that's very irresponsible. But I think when I was younger, I felt this kind of weight, like I'm going to be telling the story and the history of my country. And I barely know that history myself. I had had to do a lot of research. Um, I'd love to unpack the old drift in in just a few minutes. Sure. Let me first ask you about the novel that went into the drawer that was then forgotten about. Yeah. (laughs) Did you know at at the time because as I say you are someone who knows the craft and the culture of writing so well did you know at the time this would never see the light of day and how disappointed were you when that realization finally set in I didn't know that it would never see the light of day I really thought it would be my first book uh, my first novel and it has the feeling of a first novel in the sense that it's cleaner it's got a single through line it's and you can you know, I'm I'm investigating deep relationships between a very small cast of characters. So it has that sense of this is a first novel. Um, I was I, I was pretty devastated. It was interesting. It coincided with me getting tenure at Berkeley. So I published my academic book, got tenure, and then you know we basically decided we weren't going to sell this book. And so it was a kind of combination of. Um, joy and disappointment at the same time but I have to say I got over it faster than I thought I would and I think part of that was knowing that I have I had at the time and I have still four or five other novels that I want to write and so I felt like well it's okay if that's not the one if that's not going to be the first one Um, And I also could see what was wrong with it. Uh, This is one of the problems of being a literary critic, I think, and a writer, is that your awareness of of the flaws in your writing is very high. 
Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. There's more from Namwali in just a sec. First, let's get some of your writing tips on the show. If you've got something that has really helped the way that you tell your stories, you get your ideas down, if there's something that keeps you working through the day, I'd love to hear it and I'd love to share it on the show. Send it to me over at writersroutine.com. Rebecca in California. Hello. In California, by the way, just like Namwali. Rebecca says, don't overwrite, especially if you're struggling. Get your story out in the simplest way you can. Fluff and pad it in the edit. You can thicken it out then. Just get your tail out there. I think conciseness is the key, actually, for most storytelling. Uh, there's a there's a famous phrase in marketing. If you can't get your message across in eight words, then it's too complicated. So, I mean, instead of editing it up, everyone should trim their story down, I think. Uh, also, hello to Dylan in London, uh, who says, just sit down at the same time every single day. It doesn't matter if you start staring at a screen, if you get your emails down, if you're on Twitter, Facebook. Um, just sit down, get into the habit of when is work time, when is play time, and then your story will come. Dylan, Rebecca, thank you so much for those tips. If you've got something that you want to share with me and with the rest of the show, uh, send it over to the contact page on our website. Hi, I'm Val McDermott and this is my writing tip. Get to know a forensic scientist and make them your best friend. Now, if you missed any of Val's episode last week, you need to catch up on it. There are so many golden nuggets of tips. I've been loving all the tweets and the emails that you've been sending in all week. Uh, Just amazed at how similar your writing routine is to Val, one of the world's most successful crime authors. If you did miss that, you can catch up with it right now over at writersroutine.com and that is the place where you need to send me your writing tip, please. Right, let's get back to it then with Namwali Serpel. In this part, we mainly chat about the story, The Old Drift, how she threads her ideas through plotting and, and then makes sure that there is a story ultimately to back up the thorough characters that she's developed and the huge grand tales that she wants to get out there. Also, we talk about why this book is so important to Zambia and we get back into it with the initial idea for the tale. I mean, it's a huge concept. Big ideas. It's a long, large story to tell. But where did it come from for Namwali? What was that initial spark? Um, I was a college student. I was in a creative writing workshop. And these three characters came to me all together. And they, they're in a 
they're you know three different generations of a single family. So in a sense, it was born multi-generational anyway. And there was the grandmother who was crying all the time. And I was very interested at the time in magical realism, uh, uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, and um, the way that these magical elements would affect the body in particular. So I was also interested in the Gothic. So there's a way that you can read these three characters, these three grandmothers at the beginning of the novel as Gothic figures rather than as magical realist figures. But I knew that Martha was crying all the time and I knew that her daughter in rebellion would never cry for love and that she would become a prostitute. And I knew that her son in turn would suffer the consequence of having a mother afraid to love. And so I think one of the first sentences of the novel, which is still in the novel, but not the first sentence, was Jacob walked in on his mother breaking. And for a long time, the novel was called Breaking just because that was, you know, the fifth word or something. So I think, um, yeah, it came in that way. and I, But I didn't conceive of it as this multi generational multi-genre epic at that stage it was just a novel about these three people quite often i would imagine for uh, for authors more genre-based authors the plot is really what carries that initial idea through but it sounds like perhaps for you it's more character-based more ideological what was the Mm. purpose of the story when you sat down to write it so yes, I don't. Th- I was not very good at plot. I was not very good at character, actually, either. When I first started writing, I remember being in a course with John Crowley, and he asked us at the end of the semester to say what our flaws as writers were and what our gifts as writers were. And when I went to meet with him in that typical scenario as an undergraduate, you go and you meet with your professor and you say, am I good enough? Should I keep going? And he said, well, that's up to you really. But what I will say is that you have one of the most acute perceptions of the flaws of your writing of anybody in this class. And so I think that bodes well for you. So plot and character, and in fact, the novel that's in a draw, I chose to write it as a noir, partly because I wanted to force myself to be better at plot. So I didn't really, I wasn't good at plot to start. Um, but I think I think of genre less in terms of these mechanics and more as lenses on the world and lenses on certain kinds of experiences. So magical realism for me was less about, the let's say, the circularity of time, which is a big theme in 100 Years of Solitude, and more for me, as I said, about the body and about certain images that allow us to see the body in a particular way. What did you want it to do? So uh, mm. how did you want to shine your genre lens on it what what is this story that you're telling what was the what's the purpose of it if it's not a simple whodunit mystery you, you know so I really wanted to offer a a story that captures the way chance and coincidence and accident yield great consequence which is a very old way of thinking about writing it's very much like greek tragedy right but i wanted as i was thinking about for example the relationships between these three characters in one family i wanted the fact that sylvia was born to a mother who cried all the time 
to affect her in a way that she didn't even really understand and that she would kind of move, try to swerve away from her mother as much as possible, but then kind of end up back in the same position. And the same would happen to the next generation. So within the families, there was a sense of kind of coincidence or uh, a, a swaying or an attempt to stray away from something that just brings you back full circle. And between the, the three main families that eventually the novel uh, puts into circulation, I wanted there to be what I called very early on an, an unwitting cycle of retribution. So not the Montagues and the Capulets where you know that the families are at war, but rather a chance accident with one family affects the other one two generations down, which affects the third family, the next generation, which then in turn affects the first family. So it's almost this kind of oblique cycling of consequence and that was the philosophical thing I wanted to investigate. Uh, it, from a practical writing point of view, mm-hmm. when you had that initial concept, mm-hmm. the three families, yeah. when you've got this philosophical idea, what did you do next? How did you tell this story? Well, I needed to figure out how they intersected, right? How these families would coincide, converge and collide, and then kind of drift apart over time. And I eventually knew that these the final generation of these three families would be a love triangle because it's the perfect emblem for consequence that you can't really predict right and so i knew that we would kind of spiral in this vortex down to these three individuals at the very end of the novel so a lot of this had to you know and this is those the charts and diagrams and outlines that i mentioned earlier in around 2005 that was the big Um, structuring work that I had to do to make sure each family coincided with another family in an oblique way in a particular moment and how that would then have a butterfly effect that would affect the rest of the families. The ideas will come and very often what will happen is I have a character, I have a set of circumstances and I'll see an image or I'll I'll learn about a particular history and they will just seem to coincide in a way that feels very fated. And my process in some ways resembles what I'm writing about, right? Um, So for example, I knew that this character who cried all the time had her heart broken because her lover left her when she's pregnant at age, you know, and she was young, she was a teenager, I knew that much. And then I discovered that the same year that I planned for her to be pregnant and abandoned, a historical figure who had been part of a Zambian space program, which was this kind of loony historical event where a school teacher created a space program and was rolling people down the hill in oil barrels to simulate anti-gravity. He had one female Afronaut, and that was this woman, Martha. And I was like, oh, this is this is my character. She also got kicked out of the space program because she was pregnant at 16. And Either there was an intimation she was in love with one of the other space Mm. cadets. So I thought, oh, this is my character. So it would be these weird coincidences, like, oh, they're they're pregnant at the same time. They're the same person. Okay. And that's how, you know, I would develop plot and ideas. But I will say, like, having written in this very organic way, I did in in the major revision go through I read a book about plot called Into the Woods very good book I think by a Brit actually um, because he uses a lot of references both to Hollywood cinema but also to kind of British um, sitcoms and stuff like that and he talks about you know how every plot book has essentially the same 
whether it's five acts or three acts, has the same structure, has the same arc. And you can apply it in a fractal logic to every scene, every episode, every sequence, every chapter, and then the whole book. So I did that. I took this model and I retrofitted my entire book along that model in, a, again, a giant Excel spreadsheet. And what that meant is that I would tweak certain moments that had already happened that had to do with chance. And I would make them more, I would give them more momentum and I would give them more agency because I know that that's what readers like. So I sort of made my book more plotted in the revision. How did that feel as, as a writer who is penning, you know, quite a huge philosophical, historical work, uh, you know, to take the romantic idea of a novel and then have to boil it down to the practicality of chapter by chapter by chapter by half, by act, by whole thing. I mean, I don't think the book would be manageable without this structure. And in fact, you could see, you could call the structure schematic, three families, three generations. They, you know, they intersect in these various ways. There is a kind of, and you know, there's a family tree. There is literally a kind of schematic quality to the book because everything within it is so sprawling and there's all these genres and there's all these incidents. Some of the historical ones are more outlandish than even the ones I conjured. So there's a way in which in order to actually write a book like this, I had to be quite structured. But I think I'm like that in general. When I write, I tend to be very, I tend to make an outline. I tend to diagram things out for myself. A lot of it is pictographic, like I said, with the spiral. Um, you know, I think of uh, Virginia Woolf's notebook for To the Lighthouse, which has a diagram in it to understand what the time passing section was going to look like. I think in that way, I have this kind of visual logic or diagrammatic idea. And then when I'm writing within it, things feel just much freer. What the process of retrofitting this kind of plotted quality to the book felt like for me, it didn't feel bad. It didn't feel restrictive. It actually felt like it clarified I'll give you one example. There's a moment where the three families coincide toward the, the two-thirds mark of the book, towards the end of, the, of book two. And they're in a hair salon, and there's a fire. And figuring out how the fire was going to get started, I knew that it would be hard to actually pinpoint responsibility, right? You couldn't say, well, this person was an arsonist or a pyromaniac. Rather, this person was playing some, with some electronics. This person had their hair cut and their hair was on the floor. And there was, you know, this shorted out a circuit and the, the wire from the electronics hits the hair and the place goes up in flames. And I knew there would be a character there who saw that happen. And originally I had her just notice it and decide not to say anything. But it wasn't clear whether she was just preoccupied by other events happening or uh, too flustered to, to put out the fire. And in this retrofitting of the plot, I realized that it would make, there was greater clarity to that scene if she actually kicks the wire into the hair. Is she actually has an act that sets it off, even though you could, you still can't say she's the one responsible for it. It had all of these other factors had to come into play, but just having her have this one act clarified for me how she felt in that moment, what her motive was, and it also just for the reader was like, oh, something's happening. <laughs> Your novel is a novel in the most 
true sense of novel. It is putting something to the table. I mean, it, mm. as I said, you know, almost 600 words long. Baggy monster. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, at what point when you were writing this, did you kind of realise you, you were on to something unique? One thing I never worry about being um, preempted by, you know, when people are like, oh, worry that their idea will be stolen because I have too many ideas and they're too weird. They're too kind of all over the place. And my life experience is too unlike most people's. I'm a mixed race Zambian immigrant who spent time in England and in the U.S. in various... It's very, there's just not that many people like me. And so I'm like, my experience is going to be unique. But um, the first time I realized it could actually be a novel and could be any good was when my sister read an early chapter of the novel, actually what is now one of the first chapters, Sibylla's uh, first chapter. And she sent me an email or we, or we talked on the phone and she had read other parts of this novel before. And in very, characteristic, very characteristically of her, she said, you know, every time she saw a piece, she would say, this is great, I love this, you know. But when she read this, she said, all those other times, I was just saying that. <laughs> now, reading this piece, I really feel like this could be a book. So it was someone else telling me. Do you worry at all about its place in history? We mentioned Virginia Woolf earlier. Mm. Quite a lot, authors will reference Virginia Woolf. Oh. Um, do you worry or hope that I don't know a hundred years time someone in a someone is chatting to a writer who mentions your book I would love that and I would love if that person was a Zambian I think it's you know we don't have a very robust literary tradition we don't have very many Zambian novels and so I think if I can inspire more writers to to write about my country the all to the better when it comes to, you know, your place in history, there's, it feels very hubristic to say my book will be read in mm -hmm. a century. But to be honest, I think most writers, when they write, want to be read and they want to be read by posterity. They wouldn't bother putting the words down on the page otherwise. So I think I just have to confess, yes, I want my book to last a, a very long time. I want it to be a piece of me that lasts beyond my death. And that is it for this week's Writer's Routine. Thank you so much to Namwali Serpel for sparing time in her brief stay over here in the UK for a little chat. Uh, the Old Drift is out right now. It's a massive, entwined, thorough, philosophical, almost mind-blowing story. You can find out loads more about it at writersroutine.com. Uh, and while you're there, if you've got a writing tip, that is the place you need to send it to me. I I'd love to hear it what helps you get your story down, what helps you keep writing through the day. Uh, and then I'd love to share it on this show as well. You can fire it over to the contact page on the website or send it over to Twitter. We are at WritersPod on there and Instagram WritersRoutine. Uh, now make sure you're subscribed to the show as well so that you never miss an episode. And if the place where you do get your podcasts from is Apple, uh, please leave us a review really helps out everything that we're doing. Now next week we should be back with a rom-com writer very excited for that. A little bit of a different guest for us. We'll see how she gets her story down next week on Writer's Routine. I'll see you then. Bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop 
dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.